Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode with Saifedean Amuse, Dr. Saifedean Amuse, the author of the Bitcoin Standard and founder of Saifedean.com, where he is teaching uh, Austrian economics courses online to anybody uh, who's looking to learn about Austrian economics. So go to Saifedean.com, check out his courses there, um, and enjoy this podcast where we dive into the reason for Safe. Uh, building this product, this this class, uh, his thoughts on academia and the university system and the state of academia and, and, and the way the hierarchy works. Very fascinating conversation. Uh, if you recently saw uh, our Real Vision interview, this has a little bit of overlap, but actually not a lot of overlap overall. It is uh, more focused on uh, the class that SAFE is building and, uh, again, the university system today. This episode of Tales from the Crypt was brought to you by our friends of the Cash App. Uh, I don't know if you freaks know by this point, but they just announced that they're going to allow users to buy stocks on the Cash Apps and not just stocks, but uh, fractions of stocks at that. So uh, you already have the functionalities of the ability to be able to buy and sell Bitcoin. You're able to stack sats, sell sats, send sats off the app to a personal wallet from a personal wallet to the app. Uh, then you got the Boost program on top of that, where you can go to Boost Partner Merchants uh, with your Boost enabled and save, uh, whether it be Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, your local coffee shop. They're adding more. Uh, and now you can buy stocks. So this cash app is just getting more robust. Use the code STACKINGSATS when you go to your local app store and download the app. Again, that's STACKINGSATS, one word. You're going to get $5 upon sign up, and $5 is going to go to our friends at Owls Lacrosse. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Casa Freaks. How confident are you in your key security? How protected are your keys from disasters, physical attacks, and from yourself? Do you freaks even know that you yourself are a danger to your keys? Uh, a lot of people think uh, you're going to get robbed or beaten for your Bitcoin, but a lot of people are going to lose a lot of Bitcoin because they can't be trusted with their own keys. So Casa is here to help you. Not that I'm trying to set, set fear or anything like that. It's just a, it's just a fact. And the, uh, Casa has drummed up one of the smartest and one of the most secure ways to hodl your Bitcoin. There's no KYC, no altcoins, no percentage fee on your Bitcoin. There's no one standing between you and your keys from Jameson Lop and the most trusted, one of the most trusted teams in Bitcoin security, uh, including the co-creator of Glacier Protocol uh, and Elena Vernova, um, the founder of Trezor. So... Get peace of mind for your stash. They have packages. All memberships come with a full set of hardware nodes uh, for your multi-sig, plus the Casa Node 2, which just came out. A uh, huge upgrade from the Node 1. Uh, and they have Faraday bags, early access to all future Casa products. For serious holders in the Diamond and Platinum memberships, you're going to get 24-7 VIP service. You got that VIP service. Dedicated client advisor um, will be there to do custom onboarding and walk you through your OPSEC plan. So use the code TFTC to get up to $250 off when you go to keys.casa slash keymaster. Uh, or if you want to reach out to them directly, you can reset, reach out the Casa membership team at uh, membership at team.casa. Ask them your hardest OPSEC questions. Have them walk you through the protocol. And then go learn about some Austrian economics. Uh, it was a pleasure, as always, to sit down with SAFE and uh, do this interview. Uh, unfortunately, this one was a quick 45-minute guy again. Actually, we gained a little, we gained like 15 minutes with Safe from the first episode. I think the first episode was like 30 minutes of conversation, maybe 35. I think we bumped it up to 45 minutes here. So a little bit more time. Hopefully, 
we'll break the 60 minute mark next time again go check out safeadeen.com uh to see what safe's building in the austrian uh economic online world cheers What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Ben here in a very foreign studio here at uh, Real Vision Studio, sitting down with Safe Adina Moose. Safe, what's going on? Hey, Marty, good to see you. Good to see you. I mean, we just sat down for an hour and did uh, did an interview for the Real Vision crew there. Let's do more. That was a lot of fun, dude. It was. Thank you. We, uh, for you freaks who don't know, Safe Adin, uh, I don't think I need to introduce him, author of the Bitcoin Standard, prolific Austrian economist. Uh, memeing Bitcoin into the world. We just did an hour interview for Real Vision, talking about gold versus Bitcoin. And uh, we're here to talk about Safe's new website, some new thoughts on uh, the supply side of Bitcoin, and uh, other things. So what's going on, dude? Um, well, what's going on is that I have uh, just quit my university job. I'm no longer a university professor, and I'm now um, uh, my own uh, university professor. I've set up my own website and I'm going to be publishing my research on it and s- teaching online courses there. And I think this is a much better thing for me to do with my time than to teach at universities because I think universities are dying and it's good to get out of them. They're terrible for the professors. If you've met any professors, you know they don't enjoy um, how much the job has uh, deteriorated over the last uh, few decades and it's become terrible for the students as well students pay more and more and more and more and get um, worthless credentials and very little real education that's what we were talking about uh, over there a little earlier was i i just in the last decade went through four years of uh university study economics here in in the u.s and didn't once broach the subject of austrian economics why 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 is it that Austrian school thought isn't taught throughout the country? Well, the short answer is basically that since the 1930s, uh, universities have become practically uh, government a- agencies. They, the majority of universities, particularly in the U.S. and you know where the U.S. leads the world follows, particularly in the U.S., un- universities get the majority of their funding from government or from um, government uh, regulations that allow them to behave in certain ways. So they get their research funding, they get uh, subsidized uh, loans for the students that allow them to pay for the universities. And so universities are highly uh, linked to governments. And Austrian economics is just very bad news for governments. And, you know, it's not because Austrian economists are just, you know, hateful anarchists who hate your favorite politician, although that is probably true. But it's also because economics itself is against your stupid government, most likely, and all of the stupid things that it does, because economics is about individuals acting to achieve their own ends and trying to use the knowledge that they have to figure out the things that make their life better. And um, as you study this, you realize that the imposition of restraints on people and the use of force to force people to take decisions in a way or the other or to try and interfere in their decisions in a way other than what they would choose, that might sound like it's nice um, from a uh, central planner's perspective that, you know, we can just pass a law that says, uh, you know, uh, apples shouldn't be sold for more than $1, and then everyone will have apples for less than $1, and that sounds great. And that's kind of what, you know, your um, government wants to hear. That's why it hires the kind of economists that tell it these kinds of stupid ideas, and that's why... 
um, you know, they don't hire Austrian economists because if you ask an Austrian economist about, you know, let's put a price cap on apples so that children will only have cheap apples to eat, he'll tell you you're an idiot. And <laughs> that's not what governments like to hear. So that's why all of your government-funded universities don't have Austrian economists, which is fantastic news for me because it basically gives me almost a monopoly on the teaching of Austrian economics. Well, that's what I was going to segue into. I mean, especially here in the States, it seems like our, at least on the Democratic side, if we're going to like uh, if we're going into this presidential election, you're looking at the options on on the Democratic side. It seems they're going very, very far Keynesian, policy driven. Uh, AOC in particular has talked about price price ceilings for rents. I believe uh, Bernie wants to make everything free, debt jubilee, and that such. But it does not seem like there there is like an Austrian mindset in the mainstream at all, right? Now. No, absolutely, and it's uh, it's 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 entirely the, the well, not entirely, but to a very large extent, it's it's the fact that of just the complete absence of economic education that makes people think that um, the, the, these absolutely insane ideas could make sense. That you know, let's just take all the money from all the rich people and give it to all the poor people, and somehow society gets better. Well, no, this has been tried before, and all that you're doing, you're not giving money to the poor people. You're taking money from productive people and putting it in the hands of bureaucrats who are unproductive to go and distribute it in a way that gets them re-elected and um, that's been an excellent recipe if you want to destroy a society if you want to turn it into a big pile of rubble um, running these kinds of policies that punish people for being productive that reward people for being parasitic bureaucrats, that reward people for being demagogues, that reward people for telling uh, you that the problems of your life are not because you're not taking care of your life, but they are because rich people are taking care of, of, of their lives. Um, you know, this is all economic ignorance, and the Austrian economics fixes this. <laughs> <laughs> so what... What is your course? What comes with your course? How did you construct it? What was your mindset building the course? Yeah. What's the flow of it? Uh, what can your students expect? Well, so I initially taught a couple of courses based. Well, I taught one based on my book, and then one on the new research that I'm doing for uh, my next book. These two courses have concluded, um, but you know these were my kind of trial balloon where I wanted to try things out. But the real project that I wanted to get into is, is, is what begins in, um, now in a couple of weeks. October 21st is the first class. And that is the beginning of building an entire curriculum for Austrian economics that will be available online. And I don't think any university in the world has a full curriculum in Austrian economics courses. And uh, this is what I want to do. So the first course, which begins on October 21st, will run for 10 weeks. It'll have 10 lectures. Um, the lectures are uh, done over Zoom um, video, and you can uh, download the, uh, you can join the lecture live, interact, and then there's the lectures on Mondays, and then on Thursday there's the discussion section, which is more interactive. You can join them live, or you can download them uh, as audio or video or watch them later, and you get the class notes and the syllabus. And so the idea is that, you know, you attend the lecture every week, and then you do some readings, and over 10 weeks you'll um, effectively learn the basic principles of economics. The point of this course is really the, the very basic fundamental ideas uh, that are necessary toward understanding economics, and then future courses I'm going to build on this further. This there's sound outside. It's not going to pick it up in the mics. I don't think. I think you're good. Um, but you're starting like with intro. Like, what is the intro to Austrian economics? Do you just read Rothbard? 
<laughs> well, initially I wasn't really sure about which textbook to use, so I ended up just using all three that I had been considering because uh, they're all too good to pass up. So uh, the first one that I was thought of thinking about was the newest because I thought it would be the easiest to read, Rothbard's uh, book, Man, Economy, and State. But I think I, I later on introduced Human Action by Ludwig von Mises and Menger, Principles of Economics. So we start off with Menger. What is an economic good? What is utility? What is value? And the most important starting premise of Austrian economics, you know, the most important topic in lecture one uh, is subjective value. It's just understanding that in economics, value is subjective. There is no such thing as economic value without a human being valuing things. And so all value is subjective, and being subjective means that value is um, it's it, it's 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 present in the uh, in in the mind of people and mind of individuals. It's not inherent to goods themselves. So there's nothing that says that say a computer has to be worth a hundred dollars. It could be worth a hundred dollars for you today. It could be worth a thousand dollars for you today. If it means having this computer for you today means that you can finish a job that's worth a thousand dollars for you, then the laptop is worth a thousand today. It could be worth nothing in a situation in which you have ten laptops already and you don't need this one. Then you wouldn't be willing to pay one dollar for it. So the value of things changes across time, and understanding this is a massively important concept because. Most economists today don't understand this because they think economic, uh, economic value is something objective. And so some kind of economists think that value is determined by how much work goes into making things. And other economists think that you know value is um, the same thing as the price that emerges on a market, which is a big um, misconception. And the result of these is, is you look at um, modern economics, you know, you see all of these mathematical equations that aim at quantifying utility and economic value and to try and study them in a mathematical way and to try and make economic policies in a way that maximizes utility for people or maximizes utility for society. And once you understand the subjective nature of value, you realize how dangerous those things are and how completely unworkable they are because you're trying to fit numbers on something that is fundamentally unmeasurable with numbers. Yeah, and this is something we we touched on an hour ago too. Is the the flawed KPIs that exist in the in the current system? So the system revolves yeah. around these KPIs that don't really that are very objective, as you would argue. Yeah, the 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 modern macroeconomic stuff that you learned at university, and I'm very sorry about uh, having to go through that scam. But that scam, you don't believe in the Laffer curve? No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean the, this the, the, this this fixation with all of these metrics is. Uh, a, a result is not something that is helpful for us in understanding economics at all. I mean, if you if you spend five years doing Keynesian equations on trying to understand the macroeconomy, you will end up being uh, you will end up having a far inferior understanding of how economics works than if you hadn't done any of this stuff. So it's not because it helps us understand economics. It's not because it helps us predict or design uh, policy in a better way for whatever. Um, it's simply because this is how governments can function with things. Governments need, um, you know, metrics because they need performance because they need to. They they're making decisions for society overall, and they, you know, on an individual basis, the only data you deal with are your own preferences and the prices that are on the market. Um, but when you're trying to make decisions for society overall, you have to make them based on some aggregate decisions and. The fixation over the 20th century was to assume that just because we'd like 
to have these aggregates so that we are able to make decisions that they must therefore exist. And so uh, the, the most uh, mainstream economists are essentially failed physicists and failed mathematicians and statisticians. And uh, intellectually, as well as individually, um, but as a field, overall, it, economics is just bad math. It's just people who couldn't cut it in the math graduate program or in the physics graduate program ended up in the economics math uh, uh, graduate program because it's a little, um, it's a lot easier in terms of the math. And also it's a place where the math has absolutely no reason to work or make sense because there's no connection to reality. You know, you're dealing with all kinds of different statistics that are... Um, Really, um, uh, you know, there's no no track record of being able to predict anything, and these statistics are made up in, because they help government come up with um, ideas, but the, 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 they have a terrible track record of um, predicting how the world will actually unfold. And the other reason we use these uh, silly numbers is, funnily enough, because it's useful for making multiple choice uh, exams for the kind of mass-produced... Uh, uh, industrial kind of education that takes place today. When you're trying to teach people Keynesian economics, you know, it's useful to have all these numbers because then you can make easy exam questions, you know, where effectively you're testing students on uh, math skills, on mediocre math skills, and just how they are able to follow the instructions of the textbook to believe those things. The, the, uh, as I was saying, the, the analogy with physics and math was that we could just have... Um, we could have these metrics from just like in, in, in an engineer uses metrics like speed and uh, pressure and uh, velocity and uh, all of these things and can make equations and make them predictable. Macroeconomists have spent a century trying to do so the same thing with economics and have failed miserably at every single model and of trying to, uh, of trying to establish some kind of scientific relations. But it hasn't stopped them because there's money in it and government provides money for it and so the state of economic education has just been a giant game of naked emperor for the past 80 years and the only people who are allowed to comment on the emperor's clothes are people who get paid by the emperor yeah and, and it seems more recently the the whole argument has been reduced from a math problem to just screaming at people dead as money and talking about yes, the most uh, the most advanced uh, mechanism of uh, Keynesian teaching is just for demented Keynesians to go online and tell you that debt and money are the same thing because you know in the world of Keynesians words don't mean anything and so anything can mean anything if Keynes says so. No, and I don't want to rehash the conversation we just had, but I think it's important for this podcast too. If if you freaks don't listen to our interview on Real Vision, but one thing Safe and I just talked about was the the delusion of the collective we that that goes into the the uh, assumptions of this model. Yeah, macroeconomics is really the main function of macroeconomics is to just get you to believe in this mythical crazy monster that they call we, which is this uh, universally good entity. Uh, or, and the government acts on its behalf and somehow you know the people in government always benefit from this we and you always get hurt from it and the reason of course is that there is no such a thing as a we just because we all uh, happen to believe in the same uh, national anthem and the same flag doesn't make us one single accounting entity uh, so that there is no difference between resources being in my pocket or yours and uh, Keynes of course want you to believe that because, you know, the we is always them and people in power making decisions about you and what you need to do. 
and of course you know you're they're the ones who benefit from those decisions and you're the one who doesn't benefit and so this is th- this we in keynesian mythology is how you're able to just get over any concern about debt you know well it doesn't really matter because we all owe, owe, owe we owe this money to ourselves and so it's not a problem but it's not money that we owe to ourselves it's money that different people from this we owe to different others from this we when your um, you know when your landlord comes to correct the rent you can't just tell him well we are living in this house and it's good it's all good bro <laughs> he's going to ask for the money to move from your pocket to his and all of the stupid macroeconomics that you learned at university is not going to help you there um, but ultimately, of course, the reason they do it is the we the, the that they want to conflate is the future generations. So, you know, um, actors like Paul Krugman, who play economists on the Internet, get paid from their government-financed university to promote these ridiculous ideas to you. And that money is financed from government debt, which your children will have to pay. And so Krugman and your children are both we in the world of stupid Keynesian economists, even though your children will spend all of their life paying off Krugman's salary, somehow, you know, by putting it all into a we, we've all gotten rid of all that differentiation. This is yet another kind of the brain damage that has afflicted a lot of people because of Keynesian education, but don't worry, Austrian economics fixes this. <laughs> do you do you see, like, a, a re- like, it feels, I mean, I feel like we might be, I'm not jaded, but just, uh, we're in our bubble. We're in our Bitcoin bubble, obviously, our Austrian economics bubble. To me, at least, it seems like more people are interested in Austrian thought and learning about Austrian thought in particular. Are you seeing, obviously, you're teaching a class. Are you seeing the demand for your class rise? Is the resurgence happening? Do you think there's a renaissance of economic thought happening right now? For sure, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, this is why I left my job teaching stupid Keynesian economics in order to teach real economics because, you know, thanks to my book and thanks to Bitcoin um, and the enormous increase in interest in Austrian economics amongst Bitcoiners, now that, that there's enough of a critical mass, I feel, for me to be able to uh, run this as a business, to not have to go into a university where I have to, you know... Um, Right, research grants to governments and uh, all this, uh, all these barbaric practices that are still <laughs> carried out. What's that process like? It's terrible. It's uh, if you look at what uh, university professors do these days. Ultimately, you know, your universities don't even hire, don't even care how good you are of a teacher. It's almost completely inconsequential about how you deal with your students. You know, as long as you don't rape them, you're pretty much set. They don't really care about how you teach, what you do in your class. Most teaching is done by assistants anyway. What the universities care about is your ability to write research grants that get them money from government, and so. This is why your university professors have never written anything that you have found interesting or intelligent it's or relevant to anything in your life because they're not writing to help you and your life. They're writing to impress the people who hand out research grants. And so effectively, you know, government is just another, uh, I mean, uh, education is just another industry that's been destroyed by government control. So now... Students pay a lot of money, but it goes to the bureaucrats, and professors work a lot, but they don't get paid. You know, professors get paid so little compared to how much work they do, and the risk of the job of not making it to a full-time profession is enormous. Um, and, and, and this is all because, you know, and if you look at how much students are paying, if you look at the last 40, 50 years, tuition has skyrocketed, and yet... Professor pay has not skyrocketed. Professor pay has stayed stable, maybe gone down in certain cases. Depends on how you look at it, but it's definitely not gone up anywhere close to how much uh, tuition has gone up. 
And yet, so where is all that money going? Are they getting more professors? Nope, classes are getting smaller, and so students are paying more money to get fewer and worse uh, paid professors to teach them and spending more time with adjuncts and assistants and so on. So where exactly is all of that money going in your university? Well, ever wonder why your university's vice associate president for student engagement has a summer villa? That's why, because there's all these parasites in universities, these administrators whose existence in a university has really been made um, completely redundant and obsolete by the invention of um, practically really, you know, Google's free software package makes all university staff that are not professors completely redundant. Like there's nothing that anybody at a university does for me that I can't do. Uh, maybe free software, maybe $100 a month of software at most. I can replicate all of the services that all of the administrative staff at my university used to do. And and they don't do anything valuable um, generally. They, uh, the, the university is a bureaucracy like all bureaucracies. It faces no real market test, and so therefore it faces no, um, no real um, impetus to be uh, efficient. On the contrary, its impetus is to constantly get bigger, to take up more resources from the people who finance it. And that's why if you're a university, you don't get successful by teaching people relevant things that get them to go out and have jobs, because that would be a university that's successful in a free market. But in a, a government-controlled market, you become successful as a university by having a lot of administrators who fill out all the right paperwork and do all the things that get you connected correct to get you on the right side of the people who uh, dish out the government funding and the government regulations that are favorable for you. And so, um, you know, it, it's no wonder that the university has almost, the, the, the actual teaching that takes place in the university has almost become completely secondary to the university experience for students, which is uh, becoming more and more about uh, all things other than actually learning. It's about football games, drinking. It's about football and drinking and all those things. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things. You should uh, have, obviously have the freedom to do them, but there's something very wrong about the institution of the university being dedicated toward these things. You know, running all these football leagues and um, engaging in all of this uh, politics and um, all of the political things that universities do. It's, uh, you know, you're paying for that as a student, and it's not going to help you in, in the long run. Um, so for me, really, I think uh, the, the, the people are noticing this. People are beginning to wake up to it. Everybody who goes to university graduates and then sees, yep, you know, I've spent all this money, I'm in all this debt, and I don't know anything that I couldn't have learned with a couple of months of Googling on my own for zero dollars online. And uh, I think, you know, the, the, the reality is considering the current cost of education, it's, it's almost insane if you, have, uh, if you have the money or if you don't have it to get into this much debt or to waste that money on a job. Like if you think about it, some people will get into $200,000 of debt for a degree. Now, if you think about it, anything that you learn in that degree, all of the books that you read, all of the syllabi, all of the professors, you can get in, you you can find all of the books all the material online close to free you can if you needed instruction from the professors you could arrange to have private classes private discussions with them hire them as consultants and you could get all of the education you did for $200,000 if you wanted to really just get the actual education itself you could get it for i would say no more than 5 
and in no more than two years no question about it and i'm being generous here you could probably do it much cheaper and quicker um so what do you do with the other one hundred ninety-five thousand dollars? that's the question people don't ask themselves and my answer is whatever you think you want to do whatever industry you see yourself in um, oil and gas or restaurants or whatever it is you know instead of going to university get a very basic job in one of those industries at a very bottom rung or go to a cheap university at least if you really want to get the degree or if you need the degree but don't blow two hundred thousand dollars on some fiat universities uh, worthless credentials keep you know put 10 of these for education learn everything you want to learn uh, over time online and put all of this money um, and and then have those one hundred ninety thousand dollars that are left as a starting investment for you you know you take a few years to learn things and then put those $200,000 to work and you're starting off instead of getting into $200,000 of debt you're starting off well not the alternative is you blew it all on university instead of blowing it all on university you have it as a starting capital or you start off with no capital and instead of having $200,000 of debt I think you know you learn everything and you'll have a lot more time and yes you're going to miss out on the frat parties and all of that but you know if you work hard in the age of 18 to 25 you're going to have much better parties later on uh, you know you, you won't be in 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 the dinky dirty frat fraternities you'll be partying in much nicer places i agree but it's so fucked up how especially here in america like we're almost forced down that path like you have to do or at least up to this point to the millennial generation but i do think i do agree with you that the tide, the tide is turning like you don't like yeah I, like your model like if i'm going to go learn austrian economics and particularly austrian economics with a bitcoin tilt i'm going to want to learn from the man who wrote the book so your model at which like you can go on a website and access the man who wrote the book just see if we're a vastly uh, reduced price seems like a no-brainer yeah absolutely like you can take the whole course for a hundred dollars which is a tiny fraction of what you could uh, take a course at a university for and think about all you know the the the, the, the difference in the cost you know uh, you could say that well you know you're online and it's not the same as being in a class well yeah but with the difference in the money you could come and fly and meet me and hire me and talk to me for a, an entire day or two or a week and still have a lot of money left for your car for, for, for your career so it's 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 an insane amount of money and it's you know all these people protesting about the student debt i mean it's uh, yeah it's a very 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 big problem yes it's a big problem that you have eighty thousand dollars of debt because you've gotten a degree in some stupid thing or the other from a stupid university that's why people should stop doing it and really you know universities need to shape up universities need to realize look the internet is out there we no longer need you we, you were relevant when your library was the only place in town where people could go and actually read important knowledge and your professors were the only people in town who could go and explain those books and tell people where to find them and explain to people how to use them but now everybody can find any book anywhere online and anybody can find people online who tell them what to um, how to learn those books so the need for the university is much less than it was before and yet the costs of it are much higher than it ever was before yeah so they're they're really backing themselves into a, a corner at this point and i'm thrilled and delighted to have gotten out of this sinking ship and to be working individually with people to uh developing that 
actual uh, student-teacher relationship, which universities have almost destroyed because, you know, universities are credential mills, and so most students aren't even interested in what you're there to teach them. They're just there for the degree. And professors are, you know, the vast majority of my time, as I was saying earlier, is just filling out research report, uh, filling out research grants and filling out stupid forms that are being handed to you by your university's um, administrative administrators who are just, you know, getting, um, you know, giving themselves, um, trying to make themselves look like they're actually working by getting professors to fill out forms and do things and attend meetings and all of this bureaucratic nonsense that takes up about a third of a professor's time. It's completely inconsequential nonsense that doesn't even need to exist. It's, uh, it's there, it's make work. And, um, if we had a free market system in universities, it would it would really be amazing to see. You know, imagine if we'd had people like Steve Jobs and all of these incredibly successful CEOs take on the university challenge over the last 40, 50 years, taking on a university and trying to really make it into a, a really well-oiled, efficient machine. I mean, it would be completely different from what we have today. And I mean, again, as somebody who's gone through the university system in the last six years, I graduated college about five years ago. Yes, yeah, so like the last decade, it is woefully incompetent, woefully. Like I did not get my money's worth at all, I don't think. I learned more. Luckily, I was able to intern starting my junior year, and I w- took night classes and worked during the day and learned more at work than I did at school. Yeah, I mean, if you had, had not gone to university and you had focused on the night classes and on internships, you would have gotten far ahead in life and you would have saved probably a lot of money. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, th- there will be people who are going to get triggered by this, and I'm sure your college is an exception to what Marty and I are talking about, and I'm sure, you know, your own professors are great. Um, and, your, and, of course, there are exceptions, and there are great degrees, and there are great professors, and there, there are jobs that you can't have without a college degree, and I'm not telling you to go learn brain surgery online (laughs) and go practice but the vast majority of people don't have any good reason to be wasting their money on their local government tree education camp (laughs) i think uh, i do agree i think more people are waking up to that and i think your model is is refreshing to see the fact that it's cheap that's accessible and the whole concept of like the the teacher pupil uh, relationship, like you mentioned, it's been bastardized at this point. Like yeah, I, th- that was the thing that I was getting at. This uh, this allows me to have a much better relationship with many more students because it's so efficient. Like it, because you know the student can learn, can go through the ten hours of lectures and do a hundred hours of le- readings, and he can he needs he can do all of these things without needing to interact with me so this stuff can scale infinitely essentially and then whatever individual questions they have you know the, the they we can do these over email or over um, during the lecture or during the discussion and because so much of it is automated so much of it is you you know leveraging the digital capacities of them watching the lecture on their own they can send me the email and I can respond to it whenever I want. And so the amount of time it takes is so much um, less than the alternative, which is where the student has to come to university to come to my office hours. And, you know, um, when you when you think of all of the other things that they need to do in order to get the university degree and all of the other things that I need to do, we're getting rid of all of that, essentially, removing the middlemen of the university and all of its um, administrators and just reestablishing a relationship between me and the student. Oh, congrats. Are you you nervous at all going on this journey? Are you excited or both? 
Um, I'm, I wouldn't say nervous. No, because I took my time. I, t- I took a year off from university to work on this and to build it. And, you know, I did the first two courses. I saw how it worked. And I've, um, I've, um, I've, I've seen the benefits to me in terms of uh, just the the work itself how much more i enjoy the work how much better life is because i don't have to deal with a lot of the nonsense that i was made to deal with because i was working in a bureaucracy and i think it makes me um it, it, yeah it, it doesn't make me nervous at all i think the, the just the the whatever happens financially i'm not you know I, I obviously can't know if it's going to be a good step financially it is a bit of a risk financially but i think the mental clarity that it will afford me um, by not having to deal with all kinds of nonsense that I don't like to deal with is uh, going to be worth it, whatever uh, happens financially, I think. So I'm happy about it, whatever happens. Well, congrats. I'm happy for you. It sounds, Thank you, sir. It sounds uh, like you're following your passion. I am, yes. I'm going to keep talking about Austrian economics until the world will <laughs> give up trying to convince me <laughs> to stop. <laughs> well, we've got like five more minutes left before the next interview rolls into the real vision. Studio. Let's end it on the uh, the topic of the supply side of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, which we which we discuss. And this is something that you think is very underscored, if completely under, if not completely underscored, within the realm of debate within uh, Bitcoin mm-hmm. and and its fundamentals. So. What are your thoughts on on the supply side of Bitcoin? People talk about the demand side a lot. Um, yeah, and forget the. I think I think I think the, the the it's the effect of Bitcoin on the supply side of the dollar actually yes, that you're yes, referring yes, to. Yes. So generally, among Bitcoiners, the idea of how Bitcoin wins has generally taken the shape of everybody uh, will find that Bitcoin is mooning, and so everybody wants to dump their dollars and uh, fiat money and move to Bitcoin. And so this then leads to Bitcoin appreciating and all the other currencies collapsing, and so we have hyperinflation everywhere. And Bitcoin rises from the ashes. And while I appreciate the sentiment, um, I think there might be a bit of a problem there in that uh, what this analysis looks at is just the demand side for the dollar, but it doesn't look at the supply side. And I think that's more important because hyperinflation is always a supply side phenomenon. It's always uh, it's always the increase in the supply of money that brings about the hyperinflation. It's never the case that um the value of money collapses because the um because people just drop their demand for it you know people don't just one day wake up in venezuela and decide you know what our demand for venezuelan bolivar today is one millionth of what it was uh last year and so the value of the venezuelan bolivar goes down to a millionth of what it was that's not how it happens what happens is the central bank prints a million times as much money as it had and then the value of the currency collapses so if we're going to get hyperinflation in the dollar or the euro or any other currency, it's not going to be just because people dump the value because the central bank at the end of the day can still maintain, still has an important ability to manage the supply. And so if demand for a currency were to drop, the central bank can prevent hyperinflation from happening by reducing the supply of money through various mechanisms. But the most important mechanism of creating money is ultimately the creation of debt. So the banking system, when a new uh, loan is issued, new money is being created. And so the process of debt creates new money. So what I discuss in one of my research reports, which is available on my website, safeddeen.com, is to think about uh, the implications of hyper, uh, the implications of the rise of Bitcoin to the supply of the dollar, in particular to the supply of the dollar 
from the creation of money. And so if, um, if everybody is moving to Bitcoin, they won't just be holding fewer dollars. They will also be borrowing fewer dollars. In fact, if you move to a Bitcoin-based economy, you move to an equity-based economy, where the, not a debt-based economy. The money in our current monetary system is largely uh, is debt. It's, it's, it's created by the creation of debt. So when your government borrows more, new money is created. When your bank issues new loans, new money is being created. But Bitcoin is a hard asset. No new debt is created when new money is made. It's a hard asset, and the uh, you know the, the cost of producing it is paid up front. You have to mine it, like with gold. You pay the money, and then you mine it. Unlike with credit, where the money is generated now, and then the cost or, or, or the um, you know the, the value is expected to follow later. So, um, so if you think of more and more people moving to bitcoin and you think about bitcoin rising in value so more and more people now no longer need to keep borrowing dollars because they can just hold on to their bitcoins and they can finance their expenditure from bitcoin rather than from uh, borrowing then you see the demand for borrowing declines and if the demand for borrowing declines that means that the new money creation also declines which means that and this is this might be the craziest of all my crazy ideas that bitcoin might just be the technological solution to the global catastrophe that is government money government fiat debt money that we have because bitcoin allows us to gradually one by one monetize a new hard asset similar to gold and move off a debt uh, based monetary standard it allows us to move away from it without having to suffer the collapse of the uh, fiat money because we're not moving from the you know when we're witnessing the um w when people are moving away from the dollar they're witnessing the supply decline and the demand decline and central banks you know unless they do something excessively stupid should be able to manage this process of decline uh, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I, I don't think it's 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 a foregone conclusion that we'd have hyperinflation because we can get a deflationary reduction in the supply of money as well as a reduction in the demand for money, which could keep the value of the money relatively stable or, or at least declining in a managed, controlled way and not declining suddenly and um, being completely destroyed in terms of its value like... Uh, Bitcoin, sorry, like uh, like in the case of hyperinflation. So it might just be that Bitcoin allows us to get out of this mountain of debt that exists around the world by just basically allowing every single individual to get out of debt by holding Bitcoin and moving toward the Bitcoin-based economy. So it's just sort of a controlled transition, if you will, a little bit almost. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, the, imagine this is, uh, the, the, many people say, well, this monetary system is a big house of cards, and that is true, a house of cards should fall, but Bitcoin might just be the, this new brilliant machine that can take apart this house of cards and turn it into a deck of cards and uh, get it over with without it falling apart, because it, it you can think about, you know, always there are two cards leaning against each other. Think of those as the supply and the demand for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin removes those at the same time, decreases the supply and the demand, one individual at a time. And um, I think 
I think the perhaps we might want to consider the scenario that Bitcoin doesn't, you know, Bitcoin doesn't emerge in a bang where all the other monies are destroyed, but Bitcoin continues to grow and all the other monies continue to grow in irrelevance as Bitcoin grows. And so maybe, you know, 100 years from now, maybe the fiat economy is 10% of the Bitcoin-based economy and effectively is just a bunch for, uh, it's just a place for, um, you know, uh, statists and Keynesians to continue to LARP. Uh. <laughs> um, this is, I love this thought experiment because this is actually what I would prefer. Sort of, and it does make a lot of sense if you're, if you're removing supply and demand in equal increments individually uh, across the mass, across the we, if you will. Um, and it makes a lot of sense and we are getting kicked out here. Uh, let's wrap it up. I feel like whenever we meet, we only have like less than an hour to talk, uh, on recording. So the next time you're, you're in New York, we got to get like a two hour banger in. Yes. Well, yeah. So this it's my way of leaving you keen for more. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely. Yeah. Stew on that thought freaks. The, uh, the controlled transition. Um, is there anything you want to, you want to say before we sign off here? Let me just shill my website again, safeeddeen.com. You can go there. You can buy the research report that I just mentioned. Uh, there are seven of them, um, and you can sign up for my Austrian economics courses, and you can also find all the translations of my book. Um, so check it out, safeeddeen.com. I feel like I feel like we can comfortably say the book has been translated into dozens of languages by now. Fourteen, and we're uh, about 14. to do fifteenth, sixteen. Okay. Yeah, we're we're at fourteen now. We're, we're in our second dozen. Yes, I can take it, doesn't yeah. All right, safe. It's always a pleasure. Likewise, Marty. Thank you. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>